So what's happening on the terrorism front in West Africa these days? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? podcast about national security. When you think of Africa and terrorism, a few things probably immediately leap to mind. There's Somalia, of course, where Al-Shabaab has been fighting the Somali government and killing thousands of people since 2005, 2006. We think a lot of Nigeria, perhaps, with groups like Boko Haram, as well as the Islamic State West African province, which has killed thousands of people since the late 2000s. Or you might think of the so-called Sahel region, places like Mali and Niger and Burkina Faso and even Central African Republic, where a bunch of jihadi movements, some of them affiliated with Al-Qaeda, others with Islamic State, have been wreaking havoc for a very long period of time. But one area I'm pretty sure has not crossed many people's radar is West Africa proper. I'm talking countries like Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo, and Benin. But lately, we're hearing more and more about acts of terrorism in those countries and equally the concern that the governments in the area and their militaries are raising about the terrorist threat, which, again, is a new phenomenon as far as they're concerned. Now, I can find West Africa on a map. That's about as far as I go. But I decided to bring into this conversation a Jessica Moody. She's a peacebuilding and political risk consultant with a focus on West Africa. So hence, she's the right person to talk to. She has a doctorate in post-conflict peacebuilding in Cote d'Ivoire from the War Studies Department at King College London. And she's showing me on the line from the UK. So Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Why, what is it, Jessica, about the last, I would say, maybe 12 to 18 months maximum, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where did this jihadi threat in the aforementioned countries of you know, Cote d'Ivoire and Togo, etc., where did it stem from? I mean, I suppose the, the threat goes a bit further back. Um, I think, you know, the first attack in, in Cote d'Ivoire happened in 2016, um, an attack on, on the beach resort of Grand Bassam. Um, and then we saw a, a kidnapping attack happen in uh, northern Benin in um, May 2019. Um, but you're okay. right in the sense that, you know, it's become a lot more frequent in the last 18 months. Um, Cote d'Ivoire experienced a lot of attacks uh, late 2020 and, and in 2021. And then um, increasingly we've seen attacks in Benin and, and most recently in Togo. Um, I think the threat comes basically from the Sahel. Um, what we've been seeing happening is that the groups that are based in the Sahel um, have been expanding out of their strongholds in those countries. Um, and as they've been doing that, they've been seeking to try to um, access the coastal countries as well. Um, in, I think it was uh, 2020, there was a um, video actually released or, or leaked um, from French intelligence about the uh, plan by um, JNIM, which is one of the groups that operates yep. um, in the Sahel, uh, to start targeting uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Benin. Um, and it's been a kind of plan uh, by these groups since at least then. Um, that's kind of the first time that we have evidence of them looking to do so. Um, I think the, the, uh, the interest comes from the fact that, you know, these coastal countries have ports, um, they have access to the sea, which the Sahel doesn't. Um, and therefore, you know, they would be really useful in the sense of trade and smuggling. Um, and also, 
you know, the more territory they can control, the better. Um, it sort of draws more attention to to what they're doing in the Sahel. So um, I think that's where this, this threat has come from. So it's very important to, I think, underscore, Jessica, that these aren't indigenous jihadi. First of all, they are jihadi terrorist groups as opposed to something else, correct? Yeah. Okay. It's important to emphasize these are not indigenous jihadi movements within those West African countries. Now, if memory serves me correct, they're not Muslim dominant countries, first of all, like Nigeria is, at least northern Nigeria and the Sahel kind of thing. In other words, the, the groups that are carrying out the attacks in these West African countries, as you mentioned, they are coming from outside of the area. It, it, the research you've done, Jessica, does is there any indication that there's any support for these groups in these West African nations? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a lot more support in these countries than than you might imagine. Um, I mean, we've certainly seen that in the Sahel to begin with that, you know, although these these groups were perhaps not originally from these countries, they were certainly capitalizing on local grievances um, and then sort of uh, interlinking with indigenous groups that existed in those countries. Um, and in coastal West Africa, kind of the biggest concern that we have at the moment is that it's not just that these groups are launching attacks from the Sahel, they are setting up bases in northern parts of Cote d'Ivoire and Benin um, and now Togo, where they're trying to recruit locals from. Um, and they have you know, quite a lot of success in doing so. A lot of people in uh, the northern parts of these countries are very interested in joining. Um, you know, For example, Ghana, which, which has not actually yet been targeted, has seen huge numbers of its citizens go and join um, Jainim and Ansar al-Islam um, in, in the Sahel already. Um, so there's definitely a lot of interest um, by people in the northern parts of these countries uh, in joining jihadist groups. I think partly because uh, the northern parts of these countries have often been neglected by the state. There isn't um, a lot of development in these areas. Uh, there's not a lot of jobs. Uh, there's not a lot of electricity or schooling. Um, and these are things that jihadist groups often provide, um, mm. whether it's in a in a way that, you know, Western countries would be in favor of is another matter. But, you know, if you don't have a job and you don't have an access to electricity and, and your kids can't go to school, if somebody then provides an opportunity for you to do those things in exchange for you joining their, their extremist group, um, that begins to look like a, an appealing offer. Um, and I think the other thing to mention is that although a lot of these countries are not... Um, a lot of the coastal countries are not uh, Muslim Muslim dominant. Um, a, a lot a lot of them have northern parts of the countries that are a lot more Islamic than the southern part of the country. So, mm -hmm. uh, if you're looking to recruit in these states, then you know entering them from the north uh, tends to make a lot of sense. Although I would stress that um, generally ideology is not the thing that drives people to join these groups um it's it's more to do with you know what they're what they're offering them um strategically so i, I well thank you for clarifying that i didn't realize that so it's, it's kind of akin to nigeria where the, the north is largely muslim and the south is largely christian it seems to be the same thing in these west african countries so there's probably some historical reasons why you have the northern parts which are closer to the sahel as you mentioned uh, people predominantly Muslim in faith, whereas the other parts of the country are not. And you also point out, I think, we're very interestingly, that the terrorist groups aren't stupid. They notice that the North, and, and this, this has worked for Boko Haram very well in Nigeria, at least historically, maybe not so much now, that they are providing the services that people aren't getting from their governments, which are largely, if memory serves me correct, all the capitals are based in the south part of the country, correct? 
Uh, yeah. Okay, so they're basically saying, here we are out in the sticks. Uh, you don't care about us. These guys come along and say, we'll build you schools and we'll you know, build your infrastructure and provide you with wells and things like that. So maybe an unfair question, Jessica, but you've alluded to a number of attacks that have taken place. I, I'm seeing a lot more reporting on this part of the country in recent uh, months. As you say, it goes back to as far as 2017, but still a fairly recent phenomenon. I'm sure if my uh, internet scanning per, uh, um, practices were better, I may, be, I may have known a little bit more about this a little bit sooner. But is, in your judgment, how serious is this threat to these countries in West Africa? Um, I think it's quite a serious threat and from the perspective that um, this year we've seen the withdrawal of uh, France from Mali. Um, yep. I, I guess I keep talking about the Sahel because I think it's it's sort of intrinsically linked to what's happening in coastal West Africa. So when, when the French troops withdrew from Mali, um, there's a security vacuum. So the jihadist groups will increasingly move uh, towards the capitals of Burkina Faso and Mali um, mm-hmm. because the French troops are not doing so much to prevent that happening now. Um, so we have increasingly seen more attacks uh, around the capitals of uh, Burkina Faso and Mali, which are further south. Um, and as that happens, I think as these groups get closer to uh, the borders with coastal West Africa, um, as they, particularly as they expand further south in, in Burkina Faso, you'll find that it, you know, it, it stands to reason that there will then be more attacks in coastal West Africa as well, um, because they just by just by virtue of the fact that they will have more bases on the borders with uh, coastal West African countries. Um, and I think they, they will then, you know, seek to target those countries more frequently. Um, and that is of concern. I think, it's problematic in the in the sense that you know you don't want to have large numbers of people being killed regularly in in the northern parts of these countries. But I don't think the threat is of the of the same ilk as that that what we've seen in um, Burkina Faso and Mali. Um, I don't think that we're about to see these groups sort of march on the capitals of these countries, you know, and, and extend much further south. I think a you know, these coastal countries have seen what's happened in the Sahel and they're slightly better prepared because of that. Um, so they have all reinforced border security um, and they're all quite keen to uh, improve military cooperation in the region um, and, and yeah, do more to prevent them getting any further south. Um, equally, you know, the West in the form of France particularly and, and the US are very keen for that not to happen. So a lot of kind of awareness raising programs are happening in in northern Cote d'Ivoire and Benin, um, and and now Togo, uh, to try and and prevent them getting any further south. Um, so I think you know at least for the time being, I imagine that this threat is going to remain limited to the northern parts of these countries, um, and I think only in in the case that you know you start to see really regular attacks happening in the north and. Um, and more significant kind of bases being established that you will then start to worry that it, you know it's going to move further south but i think at the moment the the security presence in the north of those countries is is just about sufficient to uh, prevent that getting any worse i think um i mean I, I guess the ongoing concern is that as i say there is there is an interest in joining these groups in those countries which which means that you know the threat isn't going away but i think for the time being it's going to remain limited to to the north I'm glad you re- you mentioned Mali, uh, Jessica, because of course the you know, Malian government did uh, elect to kick out the French and other European partners that were part of that mission, uh, Operation Bahan, which of course the French started in 
2015 or 2016, uh, Mali government decided either we can take care of it ourselves or we'll just invite the Wagner group in from Russia, which is generally a pretty bad idea at the best of times. <laughs> so do you think then that these countries have taken a look at what's happened in Mali and said, okay, we're not going to do that for sure. We're not going to follow the Malian lead because it's shown quite categorically that what Mali did in making this decision was actually the wrong decision. And, and if I'm reading the situation in Mali uh, correctly, it, the situation is worse now than it has been in quite some time, in part because the fact that you don't have those European forces in helping the Malis, uh, Malians keep the jihadis away from Bamako. I was in Bamako a couple of years ago, and I recall that you know the, the jihadis were, were that far north of the capital at one point. So that had these countries said, well, We'll look at what Mali has done and do the exact opposite. Do you think they, they derived that lesson from what Mali did? Um, I think there's a sort of, there's a bit of a split in West Africa in terms of what Mali has done. Um, I think that, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, for example, is a country that has long been very closely allied with France and the president, Alassane Ouattara, is, you know, he's very close with the French government. Um, he's probably France's biggest ally in the region. Um, and I think, you know, irrespective of what Mali's done, I don't think that Cote d'Ivoire was ever going to kick out France um, mm-hmm. and say, you know, we don't want your assistance. Cote d'Ivoire is very keen on Western assistance. Um, and so I think, you know, in some respects, it's not really about what's happened in Mali since they kicked out France. It's about the sort of initial perspective that a country had on whether they wanted French assistance or not. Um, I think within the Sahel, there's a lot more uh, weariness with French intervention and and Western intervention. Um, Even considering what's happened in Mali, uh, there's increasing signs in Burkina Faso, for example, that um, people are very tired of of France kind of meddling in, in their affairs and they don't want French assistance. They're increasingly looking towards uh, the Wagner Group as an alternative, mm. um, even though you know what's happened in Mali is is catastrophic. So mm. um, I don't know that. I, I think within coastal coastal West Africa, that sort of resentment is is less pronounced, perhaps. Um, certainly in Cote d'Ivoire, it is. Uh, well, within the government, I would say um, among the people, you know, there's still quite a lot of resentment towards France, um, but. The government in in Cote d'Ivoire is is very unlikely to turn against uh, Western intervention, okay. and I think uh, we'll you know continue to rely on that. I have I have two other questions for you, Jessica, uh, and they're both re- um, related to sort of you know where we're going with this. Do you see pressure building by either France or the European Union, or perhaps the Americans, or to to go to the United Nations, for example, and seek some kind of a mission? in West Africa to keep the jihadis' successes limited in West Africa? Um, you know, I think if we hadn't had the experience of Mali and the, and the UN mission in Mali, you know, possibly that would, be a, um, that would be a route to go down. But I think given what's happened with the UN mission in Mali and, and how kind of uh, difficult that mission has found it to do much about... Um, well, firstly, the the, the uh, sort of intention of that mission is is not to do with jihadism, but it has become kind of wound up in uh, trying to deal with jihadist forces, and I think uh, it has ultimately been seen as kind of quite a big failure by Malians because they wanted it to do more about the jihadist threat. Um, I think it's very difficult for a UN mission to to do something about jihadism because 
you know, it involves it taking a much more aggressive stance than than is normally the case with UN missions. Um, I'm not sure that it would be the right course of action to take. And I don't know that a UN mission, uh, yeah, given the example of Mali, would would do that much to to help in this sense. The other question I have for you, Jessica, you mentioned the fact that there are people who are willing to join these groups in the northern parts of these countries for the aforementioned reasons. The jihadi groups are, they've got a pretty good PR campaign. They're, they're, they're providing services that the governments in the South are not going to provide. One thing we in the West, of course, worry about, I mean, aside from, you know, we, we obviously don't want these, these movements to spread out of control because we have interests in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. But if I could put my old security hat, uh, security service hat on, one of our concerns is that at some point, these movements, these groups may become attractive to people from outside the region to join in. So the so-called you know, foreign fighter phenomenon, you may be aware that there are some pretty senior American officials that have been talking about Afghanistan now as sort of reverting back to the battle days of the 80s, where now that with the Taliban in power, that people may see this as an attractant. In other words, a, a reason to go to Afghanistan and join groups like Al-Qaeda, which still exists, or Islamic State or whatever kind of thing. Is it a bit of a stretch to suggest that maybe that we will see, see something analogous happening in, in West Africa where people originally from the area, or in some cases, because in many cases, foreign fighters have no actual ethnic tie or historical tie to a region, may decide to travel there to join these groups or am I going out on a limb that's way too far from the trunk? Um, I don't think it's completely ridiculous. Um, I think the main inhibiting factor is that, remarkably enough, I think, you know, West Africa and the Sahel does not appear that regularly on kind of Western media services. Um, the progress that these groups have made in West Africa and the Sahel has been enormous in the last couple of years. You know, it's far outstripped what's happened in um in the middle east or um uh-huh. like the the expansion of these groups is enormous and yet you know a lot of people that you would speak to in the uk or the us wouldn't know that you know wouldn't know that this is happening and, and perhaps wouldn't even know where a lot of these places are on a map so i think that uh, reduces the interest that you know people might have in the sort of the sex appeal of going to join a jihadist group in West Africa is is much less than it would be in the Middle East or Afghanistan. Um, I think just because you know it's much less well known um, and there's there's far fewer uh, reports about the kind of attacks that are going on. I think the situation that might change that would be you know for example if with these attacks gradually getting closer to Bamako and and Ouagadougou um, in Burkina Faso. You know, possibly if they were able to actually take over one of these countries, you know, we would we would hear about it more, and that that would increase interest. And in, you know, if you were looking to join a jihadist group, maybe that would uh, draw you more closely to to those countries. Whereas at the moment, I think you know, if that was high on your on your list of <laughs> list of things to do, I think you'd be looking to go to Afghanistan because hmm. you know it's, it's a conflict that that is much better known. And and yeah, it's oh, a very good point. And I, I guess another factor would be. I don't know what the situation is like in the United Kingdom, but but here in Canada, I don't think there are a lot of people with any connection to West Africa who have emigrated to Canada. We found in the 2000s, for example, that Al-Shabaab was really serving as kind of a magnet for Somali Canadians to go and fight with Al-Shabaab. In fact, a couple of Canadians carried out terrorist attacks in Somali, having left largely the Toronto area to go back. So 
there probably isn't that natural draw either of a, of a large expatriate community that would feed these things in the future? Um, perhaps, yeah. I mean, well, in the UK, I would say there are a lot of West Africans living in the UK, but I think they would generally be from, from Ghana or Nigeria, so uh, possibly not the countries that would be most closely connected to jihadist groups in the Sahel. Um, you know, perhaps it would be more of an issue in France, where I think there's a lot more uh, Malian and uh, Burkinabi. Uh, immigrants. Okay. So where do you go from here, Jessica? I mean, you've been looking at this area. I've read some, some of your stuff online. Where is your re- Where are your research interests taking you right now? Um, well, I've been looking increasingly at what happens in Ghana next. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's really fascinating that there's this country that is surrounded by jihadist expansionism um, and is the only coastal West African country that borders Burkina Faso that has yet to be targeted. Um, and I'm really interested in looking at, you know, how it has managed to resist that and um, what has enabled it to, yeah, avoid avoid attacks taking place so far. Um, on the surface of it, it looks like, you know, a perfect target. It's a lot of Western investment there. Um, it's involved in, you know, in combating jihadist violence um, elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, it would be really interesting to to look into that more. Um, and I think on that same kind of, um, within that same theme, I think Niger is a really interesting country as well because it also um, is, you know, surrounded by jihadist violence from, you know, Mali, uh, Burkina Faso and, and even Nigeria to the south. Um, and yet jihadist violence has taken a lot longer to expand there um, and, and the government seems to have dealt with it slightly better, although, you know, there, there is a lot more. Um, there is considerable amounts of jihadist violence in Niger. It's, it's a lot less than in uh, Burkina Faso and Mali. So I'm really interested in kind of the resilience of these countries and what enables them to prevent uh, jihadist violence expanding. Well, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate, and I, I've got a sneaking <laughs> suspicion that if this, in fact, uh, metastasizes into something more serious in Ghana, I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast to talk about that. <laughs> sounds great. Jessica, I, I can't thank you enough for shedding a lot of light on an area of the world, which, as I said in the introduction, is not well known to a lot of people, and yet this is a, a, a jihadi threat which is real. Uh, as you've stated quite eloquently, it's growing. It should be of concern to us. And um, I'm just so glad I located you to to, uh, to walk us through this because uh, you know a lot more about West Africa than I do. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. So that was my conversation with Jessica Moody from uh, United Kingdom on what's happening in West Africa. Can you find West Africa on a map? Have you heard about these jihadi attacks in, in countries like Cote d'Ivoire and Benin? Love to hear your feedback. You can, jo- you can reach me on email borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content and want to get more of it, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get free access to all the podcasts and blogs. Also find a link there to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. It is self-published, available on the website, or also in an ebook format on Amazon Kindle. Love to hear your feedback and ideas for further podcasts. We'll talk again soon. Until then, take care. <laughs>